one of the things I think is interesting in baby development is how agrarian all the examples are from a gherkin one day to apples and then to grapefruits. Every, it seems like they're all like things you find at a farmer's market, what they compare sizes to, but it's a good time. Yeah, congratulations. Good morning, Timothy. It's good to see you too. So I know we've talked about this before, but I wanted to ask again, do you, does anyone remember what the second most read book of the 20th century is? The first is the Bible. The second, any guesses? Correct. <laughs> Lord of the Rings. That is correct. Yes. So um, Tolkien's epic series, um, I think, really demonstrates the core of a lot of what the human experience is. There's good, there's evil, there's struggle. There's all kinds of things that go into it. It's sacrifice for your friends, and it's loving. It's doing the right thing for the good of everyone, even when, it's, when it may put yourself in danger. As I, I've been reading through, um, through it again, and this one paragraph just struck me as like the epitome of what we've been talking about as we've been going through the Good and Beautiful God series. Um, in the Good and Beautiful God series, we've been learning how false narratives are shaping and affect the way we see the world, which has a negative effect with what we understand kingdom living is. And so part of living in the kingdom of Jesus is having proper and correct narratives about what, who God is. And, um, and so our Hobbit friends um, have, journeyed, have left the Shire in this con- at this point. They left the Shire, and immediately after leaving the Shire, they're being pursued by the Ring Race and the Black Riders. And their journey, even getting to any semblance of safety, is perilous at best. Um, very dangerous and deadly at worst. And so they've journeyed a long ways, but they've found solace in the kingdom of Elrond, in who is a, a one of the elf lords. And um, I'll try turning it on. There we go. And so this is an artist's depiction of what they visualized um, Rivendell to be. This is the place where Elrond rules, and it's a place, it's a sanctuary of safety. And so Frodo and his friends have journeyed to this point. And this is where the Fellowship of the Rings, the Fellowship of the Ring, who, the, the nine who go forward, is formed, is here at this place. So at this point in the story, they've experienced really traumatic things, but they've also come to terms with what's about to, what they're about to face as soon as they leave this is going to be worse than they can ever imagine. They're, very, they're literally trying to go to the place of the most danger. They're going to the very center of Mordor to destroy the ring, which is the very seat of where the person who's trying to get them, Sauron, sits. So... That's the context where they're in. And I just want to read this paragraph because I feel like it's a beautiful analogy of what kingdom living is. And um, like when we think about Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. I feel like this is just a good visualization of what it means to be at peace and well within the kingdom of God. So here we go. For a while, the hobbits continued to talk and think of the past journey and of the perils that lay ahead. But such was the virtue of the land of Rivendell that soon all fear and anxiety was lifted from their minds. 
The future, good or ill, was not forgotten, but ceased to have any power over the present. Health and hope grew strong in them, and they were content with each good day as it came, taking pleasure in every meal and in every word and song. The future, whether good or ill, they didn't forget about it, but they were content to be where they were. And also, it's in the hobbit's nature to enjoy a good meal. And so, I like to think I have a little bit of hobbit in me to that extent, because I love a good meal. But, as I think about our soul training of becoming more like Christ, one of the things that I know um, that we were able to do in our group was to, um, we took a little mustard seed and taped it to the front of our books. This little tiny mustard seed. Little guy, little guy. And this is a mustard tree. Um, I found out as I was researching this, this has nothing to do with that tree. This is what makes our mustard yellow mustard. And this comes from a bush, but the analogy still hands. You know, that's, it's, it's all right. It's, I, couldn't, I couldn't not tell the truth on that one, you know? But it's still it stands. Also, fun fact, in both of our pickles, mustard seeds are part of the flavoring of the brine are in there. That's the little little round dots in there. So, little tiny seed, giant tree. We get it. But one of the things I found out about mustard trees is that they are very, very hardy. They are very able to, they're able to grow even in the midst of harsh circumstances. They grow slowly, but they're hardy and they grow. And the thing I like about this picture is that is a really awesome tree. And it's not detached from life as we know it. Right? Like, clearly this is in a a place where, like, life happens. There's a road right there. People live there. You can tell that people hang out in the shade of that tree in the hot summer. There are goats and there's other, you know, the fence is there because there's other things that are going on. But, like, real life is happening there. It's not just off in the, in the woods, detached from everything. It's real life, and it's growing. And so these grow slowly, but they're very, very hardy. Let's read Psalm 1 together. That's kind of going to be a reference point for us today as we talk through our pickle-making Psalm 1, how happy is the man who does not walk in the advice of the wicked or stand in the pathway with sinners or sit in the company of mockers. Instead, his delight is in the Lord's instruction and he meditates on it day and night. He is like a tree planted beside flowing streams that bears its fruit in its season and whose leaf does not wither, whatever he does prospers. The wicked are not like this. Instead, they are like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand up in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, and the way of the wicked leads to ruin. These last eight weeks, we participated in soul training together. And um, one of the things that I think has really been really great about it is just the fact that we as a congregation are all trying 
to train together in the same ways. And it's really interesting week to week to hear some things that have really stuck and seems like something that people really resonate with. And there's been other times where, all right, I tried that, I'm moving on. And so I want to kind of just talk through, I'm going to read the reminder, remind you of what soul training things we've done so far. And I'd like you to make note of one or two things that you would like to keep in your life after our time going through this series is over. So the first week, we practiced sleep. Silence and awareness of creation, counting our blessings, praying Psalm 23, Lectio Divina, being intentional about margin, reading the Gospel of John, this week was solitude, and moving forward, this week is going to be deliberately practicing the art of slowing and slowing down. So how's it, how's it been for you? Of the practice that, that we've done, what's one or two that you'd like to keep? And then the underlying question of that is, can you tell a difference in your life? Of the last eight weeks? Can you tell you respond differently when you get cut off in traffic? Or when your kid doesn't go to bed? Or wakes up too early? Maybe nothing feels different at all. And one of the underlying things I want to tell you today is that's okay. Change happens slowly. For a simple Simple, simple organism, a piece of produce, like a cucumber, to get a real good pickle on it, it takes six weeks of being completely immersed in brine without any other oxygen or other things to interfere with it. And it still takes six weeks to make a pickle. We've had eight weeks, and we are more complex than a cucumber. So don't be discouraged if you don't feel like your heart is that different by practicing. We've been trying these things week to week, but the underlying idea is that sometimes you actually have to practice things for more than a week to build, to build a new habit, to actually come about and to help facilitate that change. But all of these aspects help to create a good brine for us to soak in, good herbs to put in there. Maybe for you, Lectio Divina is the right amount of dill. Maybe your mustard seed of flavor is silence and solitude. But spiritual formation is not fast. I don't know that I've seen a more American book title than this, right? <laughs> In a hurry to be holy. Short devotions for busy people. There's no such thing as McDonald's for spiritual formation. Right? Like you can't get it fast and you can't get it now. This is the long game. And humans are slow to develop. Over a summer, you can, have, you can plant a seed in the ground and grow a vine and grow a bunch of cucumbers. Have you ever known anyone who's grown cucumbers that didn't try to give you some? <laughs> right? Like that's the one thing we can be sure. When it comes to harvest time and your neighbor's growing cucumbers or someone here, they're going to try to give you some. <laughs> Because it's abundant once it grows and it's developed. But humans develop slowly. Can you imagine how horrible the world would be if babies could walk as soon as they were born? Like, <laughs> that is a disastrous scenario. There are plenty of animals that infants, as soon as they're born, are walking. 
But humans have so much capacity for good, so much capacity to act, authority, capacity for meaningful action, power, as it were, that babies take a really long time to get to, get to where they can actually function. And yes, most of us in this room, save one, are not babies. But it still takes us a long time to develop. And so we've been deliberate since January together in trying to form and become more like Christ. But it's still going to take a minute. There's no such thing as hurrying to be holy. Those things are completely incompatible together. So salvation is the process of becoming and entering God's family. Sanctification is the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's becoming a kingdom citizen. And part of our frustration, I think, in becoming more like Jesus is that we measure the wrong things. We've all experienced this at some point, I believe, in the Christian church. Um, and, Smith, and James Bryan Smith has been talking about the false narratives that we deal with. But one of our issues is that we measure the wrong things, I believe, often, because it's easier to measure those things. A dominant Christian narrative within our circles is, is really a sign of terrible legalism. That if you're holy, well, God will bless you. Okay, that's true. But what does blessing mean? And so often, in a lot of contexts, what we mean by blessing is the size of your house. The attractiveness of your spouse. Does your house have any mouse? No, sorry. They just rhymed. I had to find something. No. Are your kids well enough behaved? Are they put together? Right? These are the things that we've defined as a culture that are what blessing means. And that's frustrating because the size of your house has nothing to do with your capacity to love Jesus or your neighbor. There are contexts where, in fact, it's an inverse correlation. Too often we measure the goodness of one's faith, one's holiness, by the wrong boxes being checked. It's not the size of your retirement that means whether you've lived a good life or not. Dallas Willard defined holiness as simply a life that works well. A life that works well. And it stands out as odd because so often our lives do not work well. We are used to the status quo being a life that doesn't work well. There's always struggles. There's strife. And Jesus, like the hobbits in the Shire in hanging out in Rivendell, they know that hard times are to come. But there was a peace about being in the moment that I think is same true with our kingdom living. And Jesus never promised it would be easy or that would, our lives would be full of happiness. But he, we do have the promise of the fruit of the Spirit that joy will be there. Joy is not conditional upon happy endings. So a life that holiness, a, simply a life that works well, it's not being holier than thou. It's not some pretentiousness. It's not religious perfectionism. It works well because we're rooted in another world. We have security of our life in the kingdom. That no matter what happens to our physical beings, we're okay. Psalm 23. I shall, I'll fear not because you are with me. A life that works well is having the power to act as we ought. A life of holiness is a pop, appropriate power. It's the strength to do what we ought to do 
when we ought to do it, and how we need to do it. Psalm 1-1 that we just read, happy is the one that does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Right? Verse 3, it's like a tree planted by stream, flowing streams. That seed that turns into a tree doesn't happen in a hurry. It also doesn't happen by forcing itself. Trees take time. They dig down deep roots, and the fruit shows up later. It takes time. So I want to kind of talk a little bit about hurry. Hurry and striving cause arrested development in our spiritual formation. But we are constantly bombarded by the desire for hurriness. Whether it's being overcommitted or just looking busy to demonstrate to other people that you're important. These are all things that underline what we do. One of the things that James Bryan Smith said in our next chapter is, we will take on too many things or be concerned about the wrong things and in so doing miss the most important things. Because hurry at its root is rooted in fear. Hurry is fear-based and rooted in pride. Because I fear how people will perceive me, or I fear that I won't be good enough if I can't accomplish this, or I fear what it says about me if this X and Y doesn't happen. Now, when you're at the airport and your connecting flight was late and landing, does that mean you should move your legs quickly? Yes. But hurry is fear-based. If I don't make this flight, it means I'm not, I'm not good enough, or people will think I'm, I'm irresponsible. That's those two things. The different, you can move quickly and not be in a hurry. Hurry is a state of the heart. And it's driven by fear. The two greatest enemies of holiness, Dallas Willard taught us, is that are perfectionism and legalism. Now, one of the reasons that I think perfectional and legalism show up in our lives are because they're easier forms of doing faith because I have clear expectations and I'm in control. Legalism says, I know what to do and how to do it. Even though you'll never actually do it, you still have some semblance of control. You always know, you have some variation of knowing where you stand with God because you're controlling it. But I want to kind of talk through some verses of Jesus talking about what life in the kingdom is like. And then we'll dive a little bit deeper into perfectionism and legalism. Matthew 5.20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. Matthew 18.3. Truly I tell you, he said, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom. John 3, 3. Truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If we are to be rooted in the kingdom of heaven and bear good fruit, we have to move beyond the established patterns and actions that guide human life, the status quo. We have to be able to move past those things, i.e., relentless pursuit of the American dream. Those established patterns and the way of life are the things that the scribes and Pharisees teach us. 
even though the scribes and Pharisees are referenced in the Gospels, they're still alive today, and they still influence us greatly. I know it is sad. It is. So why can't this way, why can't perfectionism and legalism lead to a life of holiness? Because honestly, in some ways it's easier. We feel like we have more control. It's not actually easier. Again, Jesus said, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. It's actually a heavy burden to be overrun by perfectionism and legalism. But it feels easier because we know where we stand. We can check the boxes. We can measure where on the ladder we're at. And so that's why we naturally predispose ourselves to that. But at the end of the day, their righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees is located on the level of actions. It's how I perform. Again, it's measuring the wrong things. It's not the heart. It's not the internal, the motivations. It's an attempt at keeping control. So the scribes and Pharisees are showing us that if we control the output of our personality and control our behavior in the right ways, and we look the right ways, that gospel of sin management, as it were, that, that then we've arrived, and we're doing it, then we're succeeding. But that doesn't touch the source of our motivations, the thing that actually drives us, our heart, the inside of a person, where we really are who we are, in contrast to what we do. That's why it doesn't work, because the scribes and the Pharisees, legalism, perfectionism, are focused fully on actions, and Jesus is all about transforming our hearts. Because when we're really and singularly focused on our, on our behavior, what, ends up hap what happens when we fail? If we're like scribes and Pharisees, perfection and legalism, if we focus on our behavior and we fail, hypocrisy is the only result. What's the one thing that people say bothers them about Christians today? It's that they're hypocrites. <laughs> because this is how we've done a lot of our religious it's how it looks to a lot of people as a religious duty. When, when, when hypocrisy shows up, we run for cover. We live our lives hidden from each other. We flee from vulnerability. Our relationships flatten and we lose depth. But Jesus lived life out in the open. There's no hypocrisy to be found. There's a quote I heard this week, and I don't know who it was from, but I loved it. So I was like, all right, we're going to talk about it anyways. The best indirect proof of Jesus' divinity was that he went on a camping trip for two and a half years with a bunch of men who still believed he was the Messiah afterwards. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to hide from people when you're around them in a camping trip, right? Again, life rooted in the kingdom breeds authenticity. It transforms the inner self. It allows us to become like Christ. You could even say we become pickled. Actions focus living on, on focus, <laughs> action focused living, saying what I do and how I'm perceived is the most important thing, is really just, again, the gospel of sin management. But in the kingdom of God, when we're wrong about something, we don't have to hide it. We know where help is. We know where to get help. And we don't have to cover it up from ourselves or from God. The path forward is not through hypocrisy. So the answer to the pursuit of behavior-based righteousness 
Perfectionism is progress. No matter what I do, I've still got plenty of room to grow. No matter where we're at on our faith journey, we still have room to grow. Some people, once they're frustrated with the lack of perfection as they pursue perfectionism, give up. Resignation is not the answer to combat perfectionism. It's progress. No matter where I'm at, I've still got room to grow. And the answer to legalism is inward transformation. Not rejection of the laws, or to say pursuing righteousness is a fool's errand, but rather inward transformation. Do you find yourself defaulting to one of these perspectives? Perfectionism or legalism? I can look back at my spiritual journey and find points that line up really well in each of those. But what we're aiming towards is the completion of ourselves within the image of Christ. To get to the place where the natural outflow of our heart, that internal, is transformed. That, we, that the natural outflow is to love God. And in so doing, we naturally end up loving our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus meant what he said in the Gospels, in the Sermon on the Mount. So no matter our age, culture, or generation, we share the same calling to cultivate faith, hope, and love in our, in our hearts. James 1 reads, Consider it great joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you experience various trials, because you know that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its full effect, so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God. Who gives, it to, who gives to all generously and ungrudgingly, and it will be given to him. Don't be resigned to the, where you are today. If you don't feel like the last six weeks have produced fruit that it should have, we're complex. Don't give up. Keep cultivating. Keep digging your roots down. Keep digging deeper. We plan and act to cooperate with the grace of God. In the areas in which we fail, we learn to do things which make a difference. We take actions. We do soul training to specifically combat those issues that we continually fail at. Another word for this is the spiritual disciplines. And essentially, the spiritual disciplines are just doing what we can to cultivate the soil of our hearts, to help our roots dig deeper, to soak in the brine. By direct, direct action, we do what we can to cooperate with the Holy Spirit in our lives. We can change. You can grow. Step into grace, and that is how we experience transformation. Your life is a tree, like a mustard seed of faith. Trees work by digging their roots into the ground and grab, reaching for nutrients from what surrounds them. We are like cucumbers, absorbing the brine of what's around us. What herbs are in your brine right now? The question is not if you're being discipled. You are. You are constantly changing towards something. What is the thing that's flavoring your brine? Is it the dill of peace, the mustard seed of righteousness? Or is it 
the pepper of bitterness, the flavoring of judgmentalism for liking the wrong presidential candidate. I always go back to what Aaron challenged us way back in 2016. If you're listening to things, if you're listening to voices that are calling other people names, turn it off. That is not good, Brian, to be in. Which may mean you're listening to a lot less voices, but I think it's worth it. So dig deep, Brian, well. As we continue to practice together this week, again, we're talking about slowing, about deliberately trying to put things in our lives to help us move away from hurry, the hurry which is incompatible with growing towards Christ. So at the end of the chapter, and in our small groups, we'll talk a little bit more in depth about this, but basically, this week, try to make some deliberate actions to force you to slow down a little bit. Some of us will have a much easier time than others. For, for some of us, this will be the worst but I would encourage you, as you're out and about, if you see that other person heading to the checkout line, just step back and say, go ahead. When you see the checkout line, does anybody else do this? You do a quick calculation, which one's going to be fastest? Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. My encouragement to you this week, just try it. Deliberately pick the longest line. Find that checker that seems, again, we're not going to call people names, but that seems a little on the more incompetent side just to give yourself a moment to be still and rest. You may feel that anxiety bubbling up inside of you, but the encouragement is to be present. Make like the hobbits in Rivendell and be at peace in the moment you are in. One exercise that Smith reminds us of is just try to observe things that are different. What's something you've never noticed about the space that you're in before? A way to focus less about what isn't happening or how slow things are, but just to experience things different. If the grocery store idea doesn't sit well with you, try to just stay in the slow lane as you drive and don't change lanes. Just get in the lane and stay there the whole way. I know Cobra can be a very challenging way to do that. Which may mean you have to leave a little bit earlier. Give yourself a bigger buffer before, you're, before whatever appointment you're heading towards. Maybe try to show up five minutes early instead of just in time or a couple minutes late. And while you're there, again, just observe something that's different. Something you've never noticed before. Again, not changing lanes and driving in traffic, does that mean that you are more holy than anyone else? Of course not. Does that, mean that one who, does that mean that one who loves Jesus should always pick the longest line at the grocery store? Of course not. But we're taking deliberate action to try to give our souls a chance to facilitate in good brine, to try to eliminate hurry from our lives. The more we dig, the more we train, the more we brine and pickle, the more the Spirit's fruit will be evident in our lives. Pray with me. Jesus, we are grateful that our change is not dependent upon our efforts, that our change doesn't have to be quick, but rather that you are patient and you are gracious. God, I pray that 
throughout this week as we try to practice slowing together, we will be open to your Holy Spirit's leading and that you will teach us to observe moments of grace, both for ourselves and for those around us. In Jesus' name, amen.